Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're back and into our income inequality arc and with a special focus today on what happens if you are sick and poor or also known as healthcare in the United States. Right. Which is not to say that if you're rich and healthy, you shouldn't pay attention because it really doesn't take much to make that transition. So let's be honest. Well, maybe the income inequality part of it is different, but the healthy and sick, I mean, that can change in a heartbeat. Yes. And if you also don't know anyone who's ever been sick, who is poor, this episode is for you as well. So if you've heard our last two episodes, you know that we have started and are now deep into this income inequality arc as part of our deep dive into election issues. And if you haven't heard those past two episodes, go back and listen, because they'll provide some of the background that you may need to fully get into the details of this episode. But today, as we just discussed, we're focusing on the state of healthcare in the United States and how income inequality plays into that. And we're starting in that natural discussion place of what happens on Nextdoor. I mean, are you freaking kidding me right now? You know, I use basically zero apps. So I feel you should be impressed that I'm even on an app, let alone talking about what happens on an app. I am still rolling my eyes just a little bit because I'm really curious where this is going to go. Okay, so this the relevance, I promise, will be apparent in a second. So one of the recent conversations that happened in my neighborhood's next door. Oh, wait, and I'm interrupting. Sorry. Does everybody know what next door is? No, it's like this app that basically you enter your address and then you get like a check mark because you've been certified that you live at that address and it connects you with all the other people who are in your neighborhood right? Quote, next door, hence the name of the app. But you can, you know, it's used for stuff like, did anyone find my package? My cat is missing, you know, suspicious person, which is a whole other conversation about how it can be used. But there you go. Yes. And it is nationwide, although it may not be in your city. So if you are not familiar with next door, thank you, Sarah, for that recap of what it is. So, and the way that you post on Nextdoor is you basically have these conversations. You create a topic, people comment on it. Sometimes topics get shut down. Sometimes you get banned from Nextdoor. A whole host of things can happen. So this recent conversation was focused on why a local pharmacy would have a young woman who is wearing a mask, clearly sick, at work filling prescriptions for other people who are trying to get better. And as a side note, when I just described that, what is your first reaction when you hear that? So someone's at work, sick, wearing a mask and doing their work also in the healthcare industry. Yeah. My reaction, I would say they're wearing a mask. They're doing what they have to do to stay healthy. And they're obviously not so sick that they need to stay at home, but maybe not so obvious. Now that I realize that we're talking on our podcast where there's not just (laughs) one narrative. So, okay. And I think that's interesting because that was my first reaction too. hey, she's wearing a mask. So she's clearly aware of the fact that she's not trying to infect others. But there's probably some reason why she's at work. And so that was why and, you know, we love different narratives. That was why this discussion was so interesting, because the opinions were fascinating. It sort of ranged from outrage that this woman would dare risk other people's health to be at work to those who offered the somewhat unpopular opinion that she may not get paid for sick days or maybe at risk of losing her job if she takes too many sick days. And so she's incentivized to go to work because she can't afford to be sick. But I think the key question is, do we really care why she's at work with this mask? 
And if we don't care why, if we're not asking that question out of compassion, what does that say about how we view healthcare differently when we have money or if we don't? So I saw you nodding. I didn't know. Yeah, no, that was a, yeah, I get it. This is a good point. So let's back up a step here. Starting with sick days. Have you ever taken sick days for yourself or because maybe you're a caregiver for others? And how easy is that to do logistically or financially? For many, this is prohibitively difficult, as a 2017 study by the Economic Policy Institute found, because starting from the beginning, there is no federal law that ensures all workers are able to earn paid sick days in the United States. So for workers who fall ill or whose families depend on them to provide care in the event of an illness, this means that sick days, depending on where you work, can be incredibly costly. Taking needed sick time means workers go without pay or must show up at work while sick and delay seeking treatment for themselves or their dependents. So the EPI, the Economic Policy Institute, put out a whole bunch of information around this. But here are some of the highlights of their research. First, lack of paid sick days is a real problem, particularly for low-wage workers, and it shows up in the large paid sick days gap between high and low-wage workers. While approximately 64% of private sector American workers currently have access to paid sick days, this aggregate number hides the fact that higher-wage workers have much greater access to paid sick days than lower-wage workers do. So, for example, when you're considering that 67% aggregate number, that breaks down into 87% of private sector workers and the top 10% of wages have the ability to earn paid sick days compared with only 27% of private sector workers in the bottom 10%. That's interesting. I mean, so basically, if you're earning more money, you get more ability to take sick days and get paid for it. If you're earning less money, when you really need that money, you're even less likely to get sick days paid for. So... Again, when we talked about income inequality and the widening gap, this is yet another example of the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, right? It's like, okay, I might go off topic here, but it kind of like got under my skin a little like this swag bag. You know, like all the fancy people in Hollywood, they get these freaking fancy swag bags that have like $500 sunglasses and like blah, 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 that they get at expensive parties a thank you for attending. But you're like, these people who are fancy people who make a ton of money get, most of them can afford to buy that stuff themselves. Again, I'm making assumptions here, but anyway, slight tangent. But the other more critical thing it reminds me of is our conversation about how averages blind us to the nuances of difference. You know, remember when we did the episode on equal payday and it was something like, you know, the equal payday is in April, but it really hid the fact that there were Asian and white women who were getting paid just a little bit after men did, whereas Native American and Hispanic women like almost had to work a completely different full year in order to get the equal pay. So that average of 64% that you said of workers have access to paid sick days, that's totally different than 87% and 27%. Yeah. And I think that's such an important reminder to look at or be skeptical and be questioning about whenever you see an aggregate number, because it often hides the real disparity there. So another point that the EPI made or found in their research was that lack of paid sick days deprives workers of funds needed for basic necessities. In other words, without the ability to earn paid sick days, workers must choose between going to work sick or sending a child to school sick and losing much needed pay. For the average worker who does not have access to paid sick days, the cost of taking unpaid sick time can make a painful dent in the monthly budget for the worker's household. So if the worker needs to take off even a half day due to illness, the lost wages could be equivalent to the household's monthly spending for fruits and vegetables. Lost wages for taking off nearly three days may equal their entire grocery budget for the month. 
right? Two days of unpaid sick time could be roughly equivalent to a month's worth of gas, which makes it difficult to even get to work. And three days of unpaid sick time translates into a household's monthly utilities budget. So if you're out three days sick, you may be basically prohibited from paying for electricity and heat because you didn't make that money. And even worse, in the event of a lengthier illness, let's say seven and a half days of unpaid sick time, the worker could lose an income equivalent to a monthly rent or mortgage payment. Wow. I mean, when you break it down like that, those details are really, really striking. And I realize how, if I'm honest, I mean, I'm really privileged. I am. I'm humbled because that is like life and death quality of difference if you have ability to take sick time off or not. And as a mom, I mean, I know how many times freaking kids get sick all the time. And I want to do the right thing by the community and not send them to school sick. I have the option of doing that. And it makes me really check myself about, you know, other parents who need to send their kids to school sick, or maybe they don't get to live in a hot house for the month, right? And they're going to get more sick. I mean, it's just a lot at risk if you or your children get sick then. That's really hard in this country, in this time, for people to have to live like that. Yeah, those numbers were very striking to me because I also have never had to figure out the trade-off between groceries or going to work sick, right? So that those numbers, when it's broken down in a very clear, concise, yet powerful way, that really was impactful for me as well. Right. Because it's so easy to just have this knee jerk reaction of how selfish that they showed up at work sick and really assume the worst in someone when they're just doing their best to survive. So another thing the EPI found is that state laws providing the right to paid sick days appear to be having a small but meaningful effect as the share of workers with access to paid sick time has increased, particularly at the low end of the wage spectrum. So remember, there's no federal law, but state laws seem to be sort of bridging that gap. So access to paid sick time for low-wage workers has increased since 2012, the year the first state law requiring paid sick days went into effect in Connecticut. Right. Like we mentioned, 27% in 2016 of low-wage private sector workers nationwide with paid sick time. That is up from 18% in 2012. So it went up from 18 to 27% since that state law went into effect. So that's good. Yeah. And of all regions, what? The Pacific region had the biggest overall increase in access to paid sick days. Paid sick days law went into effect in 2015 in California and 2016 in Oregon, which are two of the three states in the census designated Pacific region. And it does beg the question to me personally of like, why is there not a federal recommendation or a law around this. I think that is worth considering when we talk overall about healthcare, because that is something that can provide not just for health of the greater society, but also at least provide a little relief for those at the lower end of the income spectrum. Yeah. You would think that this is something that, especially if we're looking at the government and how they're trying to protect and serve and better the lives of the American people as a whole. This should be one of the priorities. Especially with coronavirus on the horizon. (laughs) Oh, no. I know. I have so many thoughts on that, too. But anyway. But as we know, sick days is just one part of the bigger healthcare problem. And the unequal access to sick days highlights the role that income inequality can play, even at the most basic levels of American life when it comes to health. 
And people do want to change this, even if it's maybe not the federal government right now. So according to the same January 2020 poll conducted by NPR, the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that we talked about parts of in our income inequality arc two weeks ago. So if you missed it, go back and listen. A majority of survey respondents across all income groups says it is an important priority for the government to make sure everyone living in the United States has health insurance coverage. When it comes to the biggest health problems facing their local communities, however, the income groups diverged. The most cited health problems among the top 1% of the income adults are obesity and drug addiction or abuse. For middle-income adults, it's drug addiction or abuse and healthcare access. And among lower-income adults, the most cited health problems are drug addiction or abuse, healthcare access, and cancer. I mean, it's interesting... I heard you say that overall, drug addiction and abuse is in all income categories, as like cited as the most biggest health problem in all of the income spectrums that we were looking at. And so many people I think about, like when they think about drugs, are like, oh, it's just the poor black people, right? Isn't that like, or at least it was the knee jerk reaction. And then there was the whole opioid crisis that blew up the notion in most people's faces. And it came to national attention and care when it was the white people's kids getting addicted to opioids. And maybe perhaps I'm channeling my inner reader of Dreamland and Hillbilly Elegy. So can we please stay on track here? <laughs> I seem to be going off on tangents today a lot. But one more thing about just reflecting on what you said about those different health issues. You know what else sucks about that is cancer sucks. I think there's a lot of people who have shirts that say F cancer, like cancer sucks. It does suck. And it sucks that it didn't seem to be a problem for the upper tiers because they could probably have the health insurance or the funds to cover it. But for the lowest income people in our country, it was named as one of the top problems. And it sucks that lower income adults are stuck not being able to deal with the cost of cancer treatment. I mean, the numbers are really staggering. A good friend of ours had breast cancer. And when she was going through chemo after having to pay for surgery, because she did happen to have health insurance that year, luckily, the surgery ate up her deductible because she got treated in January. So like it was lucky in some ways, the timing of it, but she would have been charged between $5,000 and $7,000 per injection for Nulasta, which is a drug that can help the body make white blood cells after getting cancer medication, she had eight of those during the course of her treatment. Eight times, even if it's 5,000 bucks, it's $40,000 it would have cost her in order to have life-saving treatment to recover from chemo. That's staggering. That could be a family's entire income for the year. Right. Or more than that. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are definitely families, like, because what is 40,000 for a family of four is still on the edge of whether you're qualifying for free and reduced lunch, I think, right? Yeah, I don't think you qualify at that. So unbelievable. Right. And then there's also these pills called EMEND, which are these oral capsules you can take for what they found online. What I found online was like $626 for a supply of five capsules. And they don't take insurance, but it's to stop you from barfing during chemo. So it's not like a necessary drug, but it sure would be nice not to vomit all the time. And she had 16 of these. So what do you do if you don't have insurance? You either get like subpar treatment because you can't afford it, or you go into massive, massive debt. How do you dig yourself out of that? These don't seem like acceptable to be the only two choices that you have in this country. Yeah. And, you know, American healthcare is often sort of celebrated as being the best in the world. 
but you know, your anecdotal stories and this poll suggest that even when you can afford the best, too, quality, well, A, price. So even if you can't afford it, there's also an issue of quality. So quality is not guaranteed. 14% of the top 1% said they had still, even with all the money, had had serious problems with healthcare quality. And not surprisingly, 31% of the lowest income groups said they had serious problems accessing healthcare when needed. So as might be expected, and as we discussed two weeks ago, few of the wealthiest Americans reported having problems paying for the basics in life. Though, as a little asterisk and a side note, which we'll talk more about later, a surprising one in 10% of the wealthiest Americans said they've had a serious problem paying for higher education. Yeah, let's, yeah, we'll save that for next week. Well, we'll save it. So back to healthcare. But as we discussed, income inequality in the U.S. has grown over the past several decades. And as the gap between the rich and poor in our nation grows, so does the gap in their health, according to a study published in JAMA Network Open in June of 2019 and reported on by NPR. So the study drew from annual health survey data collected by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention from 1993 to 2017 including around 5.5 million Americans ages 18 to 64. The researchers focused on two questions from the survey recommended by the CDC as reliable indicators of health. So the first question was, over the last 30 days, how many healthy days have you had? And the second question was, on a scale of one to five, how would you rate your overall health? So what they found. Across all groups, American self-reported health has declined since 1993. And race, gender, and income play a bigger role in predicting health outcomes now than they did in 1993. I mean, let that sink in for a second. People talk about health like it's just about whether you're skinny or you're fat. And then they assume, and this is, please understand, I'm just using this as a generalization. It's not what I believe. But like, oh, fat people make bad choices. Skinny people make good choices. People get really, really judgy about what's going on with other people's bodies and whether they're taking care of their health or not. But according to these stats, what they found is that it's largely not about what you do about your health, but it's based on, I mean, if what you're saying is true, sort of like how you were born. Race is the color of your skin. Gender is how you identify in this world, right? And so the family legacy most of the time when it comes to income brackets, right? Because we talked about the legacy of that. It's income that is predicting health in- outcomes. Yeah, because thinking back to that discussion of, you know, how many sick days equals what is the family, you know, trading between. You have a sick day, a half a sick day. You might be taking fruits and vegetables out of your budget for your family for the month. And if you think about just the health implications of that and that alone, that means that income has to be directly related to health outcomes. Right. Well, and going back to the fruit and vegetable example, too, how many people live in what they call a food desert Yeah, where they literally don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables? And that doesn't tend to happen in the areas where there is a lot of money or if you have a car where you can easily drive to places. But there are areas in this country where you cannot access fresh fruits and vegetables easily. Yeah, that's a great point. So going back to this study and survey, overall, white men in the highest income bracket were the healthiest group. Shocker. I know. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Not at all. And actually, what's happening to the health of wealthier people is that it's remaining relatively stagnant, but the health of the lowest income group is declining substantially over time, says Frederick Zimmerman, the study's lead author and a professor at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. The researchers looked at differences in health between white and black people and between three different income brackets. 
They assessed the degree to which race, income, and gender influenced health outcomes over time, which is a measure they called health justice. Finally, they calculated the gap between people's health outcomes and that of the most privileged demographic, high-income white men. Results of this analysis suggest that there has been a clear lack of progress on health equity during the past 25 years in the United States, the researchers write. Income was the biggest predictor of differences in health outcomes, according to Zimmerman. Health differences between the highest income groups and lowest income group increased really quite dramatically, he says. But things weren't all negative. On one measure, disparity between health outcomes for black and white people, the gap between health outcomes narrowed significantly. But gender and race still influenced health outcomes. Lisa Cooper, who's a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor in Health Equity at Johns Hopkins, called the study's conclusions frustrating, but honestly, not surprising. She said that future research could do more to examine the context of these demographic factors. For instance, not just what race somebody is, but whether the person lives in a segregated neighborhood or maybe in you know, one of these sort of food desert areas or the type of neighborhood that they're in. Limitations of this study include the fact that the authors were not able to look at factors like immigration status and sexual orientation. And when I read this, I was like, I want to know more about these factors. <laughs> so I hope that that is you know, the next step. This study demonstrates a stunning lack of progress at the macro level, says Eileen Moore, a physician and associate professor of medicine at Georgetown University's School of Medicine and medical director of Georgetown University's Health Justice Alliance. Vicki Girard, a professor of law at Georgetown and co-director of the Health Justice Alliance, says the study's large size and longevity make it significant. She said its findings should be a call to action on addressing broader societal inequality. I mean, here's what blows my mind mainly because I get mad about people not having access to go to the doctor. You hear so many stories about people waiting until they're really, really, really not well so that they have to go to the ER. And then it inflates the hospital bills for everybody because they can't pay it. So everyone else has to make up for it. And you hear of people going broke if they get hit by a bus or get cancer or whatever. And if you haven't heard me rant about it yet, just maybe you don't want me to do that. But <laughs> research shows that healthcare accounts for only 10 to 20% of overall health outcomes. Healthcare only is 10 to 20%. Social determinants, which is basically our living conditions and the factors that drive them, account for the rest. So for instance, studies have found that low education is attributable to the same number of deaths as heart attacks. One 2016 study showed that the average life expectancy of U.S. men in the bottom 1% of income distribution has roughly equivalent to the life expectancy of someone in Sudan or Pakistan, whereas men in the top 1% of income here outlive the average man in all other countries. That is a crazy disparity if you think about how we view ourselves on the world stage. So to make real progress on health inequities, communities really have to address the life conditions that contribute to poor health, Moore says. And in their own work, Moore and Gerard use legal strategies to ease the stress of their patients' lives. So for instance, when patients who live in public housing have problems like pest infestation or lead paint, their team finds them attorneys to hold their landlords to account. And Moore says these kinds of approaches can address social determinants on a local level, but they really need to be implemented more widely. Dr. Jesus Ramirez Valles, I hope I didn't butcher the name, but director of the Health Equity Institute at San Francisco State University, he says he would have liked to see the study include people under 18 because that's when he says, quote, health inequities settle, end quote. And that's when they become entrenched, which is interesting because it's back to the kids. 
The study that we're talking about here looked at people of working age, which was between 18 and 64 years old. But he says the study does do a good job of showing that when it comes to health outcomes, it's not always immediately about health. He says the study's findings indicate a need for two broad policy recommendations. And he thinks it's the revision of the minimum wage and a rethinking of our current taxation system. He argues income inequality is at the bottom of this. We need to target it and attack it aggressively, not only in this country, but worldwide. So if health issues are less about health care and more tied to income inequality, what can we do about it? One real issue that is linked to both is actual access to health care. So and this is a slight backstory. In preparation for this episode, I really I tried very, very hard to read this extremely statistically driven study from the December 2019 issue of the American Journal of Accountable Care. Yep, that's really a thing. But I was immediately reminded of why I hated statistics so much. So yes, mom, (laughs) hated statistics. So in order to spare you the eye rolls or the eyes glazing over that I experienced in a similar fashion as to when I heard my brother's med school final project, which where I literally understood maybe every third word. I have never heard some of those words in the English language before. (laughs) Sorry, brother. (laughs) I know. Love you. The summary of this study is this. Wealthier and more urban areas have more access to doctors. Rural and lower income areas do not. Also, the distance to specialty hospitals is much greater when you consider rural areas. So probably none of this seems surprising at a fundamental level. But are there solutions to this? And the answer is yes. And part of this is driven by the idea that a healthy workforce is one that is making money. So a study conducted in 2018 showed that U.S. employers paid nearly $880 billion in healthcare benefits for employees and dependents, which seems like a staggeringly large amount. However, illness-related lost productivity costs them about another $530 billion per year per a report from the Integrated Benefits Institute, or IBI, which is a nonprofit health and productivity research organization. So that amounts to 60 cents for every dollar employers spend on healthcare benefits. It's basically a cost to them, which is an amazing amount of money. Yeah, seriously. Employees covered for sick time, workers' compensation, disability, and family and medical leave benefits are absent about 893 million days due to illness and incur an estimated 527 million lost workdays due to impaired performance. So this totals almost 1.4 billion days annually of employees absent, which is greater than every nurse in the United States missing a year of work. Holy cow. I mean, it is huge. And one of the things I really want to interject here is, I think this is one of the key reasons why I'm involved in positive psychology. And you know that, I mean, I do it a lot for myself because I really want to understand what it takes to thrive, but there's obviously a clear link between the mind and the body. Neither operates without the other. So anybody who's skeptical about the mind-body connection, just think about that. Because we treat them as totally separate entities in this country for the most part. And it's only starting to be accepted that it actually is, we are a system in our bodies and minds together. And people who are in negative life circumstances and don't have the tools to buoy themselves sort of psychologically using tried and tested research methodologies, you're also likely to get sick. I mean, I understand that there is just the physical body can get sick too, But the studies in positive psych are not about like this Pollyanna, happy, happy, rose-colored glasses. It's really talk about research-proven things we can all do to improve our health holistically and increase our resilience from things that come at us in life. And I think this episode is actually going to air after I'm back from emceeing the World Happiness Summit in mid-March. 
but it's literally a global convening of the leading researchers and practitioners in the field of happiness study. So if you're at all interested in learning more, let us know. I mean, this show overall is a lot about race and social justice issues, but I'm all in on spreading wellness and practices as well. And it can help buoy some of what we need to do to make it through this life. But going back to it, the episode of Sarah's random interjections. <laughs> to put what you were saying, Misasha, in further context, the cost of poor health to employers is greater than the combined revenues of these companies. Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Netflix, eBay, and Adobe, said the is Thomas Perry, who is the IBI president. There is not a CEO or CFO that can placidly accept their business, expending the equivalent of almost two-thirds of their healthcare dollars on lost productivity. Illness costs this country hundreds of billions of dollars, and we can no longer afford to ignore the health of our workforce. These results demonstrate the need for a more holistic, integrated strategy when it comes to managing health. And so if we know that income inequality leads to health problems, but good health is something that would not only make our friends and family stronger, but our workforce as well, what can we do to equalize the playing field? I'm so glad you asked. Some Democratic candidates, and we're right into election time, are currently pushing for change through something called Medicare for All, which you may have been reading about or talking about, especially as it's come up time and again in the Democratic debates. Simply put, it's a way Medicare for All is a way to get rid of the private insurance market and offer insurance for everyone through a single payer system. So again, that was very, very simply put. And if you believe like we do, that healthcare is a fundamental human right, this sounds amazing. But it's not without implications for everyone's current healthcare, the individuals who work in the healthcare industry, the individuals who work for private insurers, and many more. So both sides of the aisle, both left and right-leaning policy shops, put the Medicare for All price tag around $32 trillion over 10 years, which is, I mean, in and of itself an astounding number. But some analysts say that this would, even though this number is so large, it would nevertheless represent a small decrease in overall health spending. But most people, even the ones who believe in universal health care, want to know, what will it cost me? Currently, two candidates who are still, as of the time of recording, still in this race, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, both of whom who would raise taxes on the wealthiest Americans to pay for their programs, say any tax increase on middle class families would be offset by the elimination of insurance premiums and most of their health care costs. So it should be noted, little asterisk here, that Warren has recently backed away from implementing the single payer system immediately, instead suggesting that we should bolster the existing Affordable Care Act first and then move to this system. All in all, the taxes that I was just talking about, those numbers are incredibly hard to pin down. We're taxed at different rates, and Americans with health insurance pay widely varying amounts for premiums, co-pays, office visits, specialist visits, and prescriptions. And not to mention, there are various versions of this plan. But fundamentally, you should be listening to what the candidates say when they talk about two things. First, how we will pay for it. And second, how it will work, as a great article written by Nancy Kaffer late last year in the Detroit Free Press points out. She raises several fundamental questions that the candidates should answer before you can really vet their plans. Want me to ask you some of these questions? Yes, please. Okay. Why will it be better? Okay, so almost any kind of health coverage would be an improvement for those who are currently uninsured. I think that's a no-brainer. But even for those of us with employer-based health care plans, and really those are the people who will need to buy into Medicare for all, dealing with health insurance, as we have both experienced, is often a nightmare. 
Benefits have gotten worse. Plans have changed with little or no notice. And authorization for even routine care or prescription can take hours. Or days or weeks. Right. Or And if you're part of a union, union reps may or may not be fighting for you. But even with all of those issues, when you hear about change to healthcare plans or policies, it nearly always means worse in a lot of our minds. And is that because change is scary? Or is it because we just don't freaking know what it's going to look like until it happens? Well, I think it's a combination of both. And that when change means your premiums go up, and change means, you know, you've got more hoops to jump through to get something covered under your insurance policy. I think that's when it's never like change is, oh, this is going to be amazing that you get all these additional things covered. That's generally the outlier on the change side. And I think this really is interesting to consider because all of us are in it like, well, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Is it going to be better for me? But we really can't see that. And I think it'll be so difficult as a human being, but so important for us to say, is it better for our country overall and the longer term vision we have for where the country is that our kids are going to grow up with? And are these kids that they're growing up with now going to be cared for and taken care of in a better way so they're healthier when they're our ages and we are, you know, our parents' ages? So I think it's really hard to get out of our own heads. But societally, I'm curious if that'll be a better change for us. Yeah, because I mean, candidates who support Medicare for all need to articulate clearly why a single payer system would result in better outcomes with regard to cost, national health care spending, the stability of the system and the ease of interacting with it. And Sarah, to your point, I would also add sort of the longevity, like how does that roadmap look going into the future? In other words, you know, healthcare is basically like plumbing. No one wants to have to think about it. We just want it to work in the long term, too. Right, right. All right. Going back to the article, another question from it. What countries provide models for implementing a single payer system? So we are clearly late to the single payer game. The United Kingdom's National Health Service developed after World War II. Canada's single payer system dates to the 1960s. And in the intervening decades, the healthcare landscape has become increasingly complex. So the rates for hospitals and doctors' bills for the same procedures vary widely for reasons ranging from personnel to facilities costs. So what would it be like to impose fixed costs on such a system? And has anyone else actually done it? Well, so the Detroit Free Press asked John McDonough from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health the same question, and his response was, the only single-payer system they emerged from an already developed system, of which I'm aware, is South Korea's. Other than that, can't think of any. So these questions about the feasibility of moving to uniform and unitary payment from within our current sort of hodgepodge are valid. And as McDonough states, any change would produce many winners and many losers, all depending on levels of reimbursement and other vital details, none of which have been fleshed out in any meaningful way in any of the current proposals. That's interesting. And, you know, as friends in the UK, we have family and can friends in Canada. And there's something to be said about the safety net that, that it provides, where it is this we culture. We're in it together. It's not just me, me, me. And I do think I know friends in the UK have the option of paying for private care, like when they're delivering babies, if they don't want to go to the National Health Service delivery rooms, they have the option to pay extra. And I know, you know, there's pros and cons to all of it. But at the very least, people are safer yeah. overall as a society. Interesting. I'm sounding more and more like I'm supporting it, but I don't know what I think about it yet. So hold on. Okay, let's go back to the article. So what would abolishing private insurance mean? So Sanders' Medicare for All proposal would bar private insurance companies from offering any product that duplicated government insurance. 
And as is no surprise to anyone, insurance is a giant profit-making industry. So if Congress were to make private insurance illegal, it would be nuts to not expect lawsuits. So the Detroit Free Press called someone who totally does expect lawsuits, who is the University of Michigan law professor, Sam Bagenstos, who patiently answered all of their questions, even the hypothetical one about what would happen if Congress banned cupcakes, which sounds amazing. But anyway, lawsuits, he said, would certainly happen. Congress is on solid footing when it comes to regulating commerce, he said, and regulating commerce includes the power to prohibit commerce. For example, the federal government has banned the sale of interstate lottery tickets. It prohibits the sale of marijuana and other drugs, depending on, well, obviously some states have sort of changed that, and outlaws chemicals scientists agree are harmful. But whether a prohibition like Sanders would stick, he says, that depends on the makeup of the Supreme Court. There's a line of thinking among conservative judges who don't have a majority on the Supreme Court right now, but could at some point in the future, very, very, very near future and basically do already, that the due process clause protects the right to enter into contracts. Meaning they can't just say you can't do it. Right. Interesting. What would happen to people who work for private insurers? Right. And so I'm assuming your question is not talking about the CEOs who get like multiple times. Yeah, no. Yes, right. Not them. No, we're talking about the guy or the woman at the Employee Benefits Call Center, the one whose job is to explain what went wrong on your last insurance bill, basically. Which also, could you imagine working for a company where you're like, I agree to take care of you, but I don't feel like paying for that. Like, could you imagine any other industry where that's a viable business model? How do we let them get away with it? But again, I'm stopping with the interjections this episode. (laughs) That's okay. Bring it on. Do you, Sarah? So the Insurance Information Institute says that of the roughly 2.7 million Americans who worked in the insurance industry in 2017, 2.7 million Americans, about 870,000, well, a little over 870,000 were employed in the health and life insurance sectors. So that's, I mean, it's close to 900,000. So that's a full third of the Americans who work in that industry. So some would likely find jobs in the new single payer system. But one of the ways a single payer system would save money is by streamlining the health insurance bureaucracy. So even in the big picture, over 800,000 newly employed unemployed workers is more than a blip when you consider that 6 million Americas, Americans are currently unemployed, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics. So you could argue that it's a short-term sacrifice for a system that will greatly improve the lives of most Americans. And you might be right, but would you like to make that case to any of the existing health insurance you know, industry employees, especially that person at the call center? Probably not. So Harvard, when you know, asked about this, McDonough from Harvard stated, presumably a drastically reduced health insurance industry would remain to provide supplemental coverage for benefits and perhaps cost sharing not covered under a new federal play, much like 90% of Medicare enrollees today have some kind of supplemental coverage. So it wouldn't go away totally, but it would be a much smaller industry with far less influence and power, which is why he says they would fight to the death to prevent this from happening. So when you're listening to the debates or reading about the debates, reading candidate statements and considering who you're voting for in November, if not before, if you have a later primary, when you think about health care, think about these issues, especially how income inequality plays into it. And like other election issues, Politico has put together a great primer on where candidates stand when it comes to health care. So I think we'll 
if you're on our email list, we'll get you that link. Check out the link and think about what really matters to you when you turn up to vote. But please vote. And you knew we would end with that. So let's do it. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer.